Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Uh, we are going to be reading a book, The Clue of the Golden Coin, and this is part of the series uh, called the Vicky Barr Flight Stewardess Series. And like I said before, this is The Clue of the Golden Coin. The book is by Helen Wells. Chapter 1 Sunshine Assignment Swirls of heavy snowflakes driven by a brisk wind that whistled across the vast expanse of concrete runways that is New York City's Idlewild Airport dashed along the big picture window in the personal lounge and spiraled back into the murky whiteness of the winter morning. Inside the comfortable room, four girls, all dressed in the trim blue uniforms of Federal Airlines stewardesses, sat in soft leather armchairs. Of all the luck, one of the girls, a tall brunette, grinned as she shook her head in mock despair. Here it is, the middle of the worst winter we've had in years. And what do I draw as my new assignment? New York to Chicago, the two coldest towns in the world. And you two, you lucky kids, get the Florida run. Vicky Barr tucked a strand of her ash blonde hair in place, and her laugh tickled like Chinese chimes stirred in a gentle breeze. Your trouble, Sue, is that you don't wish on stars. 
Now the other nights, flying down from Boston, I looked out the window, and there was Venus hanging up in the sky, as bright and as pretty as you please. So I said, starlight, star bright, first star I've seen tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, get one wish tonight. Oh, go away. No, I really mean it, I said. I wish I was assigned to the Florida run. And the next morning, the chief stewardess called me into her office and told me that my new assignment was the New York to Tampa. Sue chuckled. Vicky, you little vexin. I don't know whether to believe you or not, but just the same I envy you. When I think of Chicago in this weather, she shuddered. Burr. And I do mean burr. I envy you, one of the other girls spoke up. You kids are really going to have fun. And I was reading the other day about the big pirate carnival they are having every year about this time down in Tampa. It's supposed to be as fun and as giddy as the New Orleans Mardi Gras. That's the Gasparilla Pirate Festival, the fourth girl, Vicky's co-stewardess, volunteered. Kathy Slums was a tall, slender girl about Vicky's own age, with flaming red hair that contrasted sharply with the pale blue of her perky cap. And you're right, Vicky, and I are going to have buckets of fun. She winked at her flight partner and grinned. By the way, Vicky, I wonder what big things are happening out in Chicago this winter. Don't rub it in, Sue said. She glanced at the pattern of snow swirling up against the wide window. If this keeps up, it doesn't look as if any of us will get away from New York. Maybe not you, Vicky replied, but we go out on schedule. I checked with the operations as I came in, and south of Washington, there's not a snow cloud in the sky. Remember, it's the weather at landing, not the takeoff, that counts. At that moment, Johnny Becker, co-pilot on Vicky's flight, tucked it, stuck his handsome crew-cut blonde head in the door. Let's go, kids. No day off for you two, he said with a wide grin. We're taking off on the nose. Meet you in five minutes at gate five. Vicky and Kathy picked up their flight bags and top coats and headed from the door that Johnny had closed after him. Give her love to the ice on Lake Michigan, Kathy said over her shoulder. And don't slip on the ice when you walk away from your ship, Vicky added with a smile. Get out, Sue said, before we throw you out. And oh yes, she added, a smiling twinkling in her eyes, give our best to that pirate fellow. Four hours later, the big DC-6B four-engine plane put up its port wing and the pilot banked to the swing into his landing pattern. Vicky, strapped in the stewardess jump seat for the landing, looked out the window at the tropical vista spread all around her. To her left, as the pilot banked, the window was filled with the bright blue sky, cloudless except for a few white wisps that floated high overhead. Through the window... Across the aisle, she looked down on sand, on the sand of beaches gleaming golden in the early afternoon sun, the vivid aquamarine blue of the waters of the gulf, and the crisp green of the lawn and gardens that surrounded the glistening white houses. Then the plane straightened, passed over the busy streets of the old city, over the scattered houses in the suburbs, and at last the hangars and runways of Tampa International Airport swept into view over the leading edge of the wing. 
The big plane shuddered as Captain March, the senior pilot, lowered his wing flaps to check the landing speed. Then the runway rushed up to meet the ship, and there was a shrill and whine as the tires hit the concrete strip. In her natural element, the air and the huge plane was effortless and graceful in flight as a soaring goal, but on the ground her wings vibrated and seemed to droop, and she shook all over like some great tired clumsy beast as she lumbered forward to the unloading gate. The instant she felt the ship land and steady on its taxing course, Vicky unfastened her seatbelt and got to her feet, ready to help her passengers collect their things and get ready to disembark. Ten minutes later, she and Kathy were standing in the open plane doorway, saying goodbye to the last of them, three small children who, with their mother, had been making their first trip by air. The little girls had been fascinated by the flight, and Vicky had spent all of her spare minutes, which on a short flight like this one, and with the hot lunches to be served and 80 passengers, were very few, answering their eager questions. Then, rapidly, the two stewardess checked through the big cabin for any belongings their passengers might have left behind. I hope our hotel is on the beach, Kathy said, stopping a moment to gaze out of the warm sunshine. I cannot wait to start working on a Florida tan. I'm staying with, with the Louise Curtin family, Vicky said, at least for the first few trips. Louise Curtin? She was in my class at the University of Illinois, Vicky explained. Her family lives down here. When I wrote that I was going to be on the Tampa run, she phoned me the minute she got the letter and insisted I absolutely must stay with them on my layovers. It's nice to have friends, Kathy sighed, much better than a hotel room. Federal, like all the other airlines, provided hotel accommodations for the crew when they were away from home. In New York, Vicky shared an apartment with several other Federal Airlines stewardesses. That reminds me, I have another friend in Tampa, Vicky said. I'll have to look him up. Ah, said Kathy, brightening. Do I smell romance in the air? Vicky laughed. I hate to disappoint you, Kathy, but Joey Watson is a boy who works here in the Federal Warehouse. He's an orphaned poor kid cousin of Billy Avery, the pilot who taught me to fly. Kathy's eyes widened. To fly? Don't tell me you're a pilot as well as a stewardess. I have had my private license for two years, Vicky smiled, but I don't have a chance to get in much flying time when I'm in New York anyway. She went on. Joey was dying to learn to fly, and Billy asked me if I had mind putting in a good word for him with the Federal Personnel Department. There happened to be an opening here, and Joey got the job. So you see, there goes your romance. I'm afraid Joey thinks of me more like a mother. Kathy surveyed Vicky's slim, trim figure, looking her up and down with an expression of exaggerated appraisal on her face. You don't look like a mother type to me, gal. All right, Vicky chuckled. Make it a big sister, if that suits you better. At that moment, the door to the flight deck opened and Captain March entered the main cabin, followed by Johnny Baker, the co-pilot. The captain had a leather briefcase tucked under his arm, and both men carried blue canvas overnight bags, stamped with the same 
insignia of the airline. How did it go, girls? the captain asked. Smooth as silk, Vicky answered. Everybody seemed to enjoy themselves, and one or two went out of their way to say so. Fine, the captain said briskly. That's good. Now let's check in and get out get out to the hotel. I could use a swim. As the four crew members walked from the plane to the federal to Federal's operation office in the airport building, Vicky explained to the Captain Marsh about her invitation to stay with the curtains. Oh yes, she continued. A young friend of mine works at the cargo handler in the freight warehouse. She told the captain briefly about Joey Watson and how she had helped him get his job. Do you suppose it will be all right if I go over and say hello? I don't see why not, the captain replied. Just don't, just be sure to check with the foreman first. They don't like to have unauthorized personnel wandering around. A few minutes after they had made their routine check-in, Vicky said goodbye to her fellow crew members and strode leisurely in the direction of the big warehouse building. A heavy-set man lounged in the warehouse doorway, holding a half-consumed bottle of Coke in his hand. He looked quizzically at Vicky as she approached. Can you please tell me where I can find the foreman? Vicky asked politely. You're talking to him, the man said. His square-cut face was expressionless, neither friendly nor unfriendly. I'd like to see Joy Watson for a minute. Is he on duty this afternoon? Yep. Are you a friend of his? Vicky put on her prettiest smile. Well, sort of, she said. I haven't seen him for some time, and if I may, I'd like to say hello. Just a second, the foreman said. I'll go get him. He turned and disappeared into the huge building. Vicky looked in through the doors. Piles of boxes, cartons, and bulky sacks stood stacked like an island on the big expanse on the floor. Cargo handlers were busy sorting these, loading some on small motor carts, and unloading others that had just been taken off incoming planes. Backed up at a long platform that ran the lengths of the opposite side of the building were half a dozen trucks waiting to pick up the cargo for local delivery. Other workmen weighed outgoing boxes and bales and nailed cartons up more securely. The whole place had an air of quiet efficiency. A tall young figure dashed out of the dimness of the big room and ran up to Vicky. A big smile spread across his eager face. Miss Vicky, he cried breathlessly, holding out his hand. I never expected to see you here. Hey, Joey, Vicky greeted him. She took his outstretched hand and he pummeled hers in a warm but excited handshake. How's the job going? Swell, Miss Vicky, just swell. Joey Watson was 18, tall, thin, and with long arms that dangled awkwardly from his skinny shoulders. As he stood grinning contagiously, he reminded Vicky of a friendlier, energetic, oversized puppy. She couldn't help grinning back at him. Well, Vicky asked, are there enough airplanes around here to suit you? There sure are. I like to have taken any kind of job, even sweeping the place out, just to be around planes. And I can't thank you enough for getting this one for me. Just then, the door foreman reappeared. Oh, Van, Joey said eagerly. 
I want you to meet Ms. Vicky Barr. She's a federal stewardess and, he added, his eyes shining, a pilot. Van mumbled an acknowledgement of the introduction. Don't take too long a break, boy, he said to Joey. Ed will need you on his cart to meet the 350 flight from Dallas. The foreman nodded briskly to Vicky and walked off. Vicky looked after his wooden, uniformed figure. Was he naturally chilly or just a nose-to-the-grindstone type? Oh well, it really didn't matter. She'd probably never see him again. She turned her attention back to Joey. I'm afraid I'm not much of a pilot, she smiled. Whatever you may think. Joey's face wrinkled up in a grin. Anybody who can fly is pretty big in my book. He pointed to an area of concrete strip between the warehouse and the service hangar next door. See that beach sitting sitting over there? A small twin-engine beachcraft stood on the strip. The cowling had been removed from one of her engine's nacelles, and a man stood on the stepladder tinkering with the motor. That's Steve Miller, Joey said. He's a charter pilot here at the field, and he's promised to teach me to fly. Why, that's wonderful, Vicky exclaimed, her eyes twinkling with pleasure. She knew that being able to fly was the most important thing in a boy's life. Steve's the best, Joey went on enthusiastically. So's Van Lasseter. He's the fellow I introduced to you just now. Gosh, everyone around this airport is pretty swell. You just naturally... You just naturally like everybody that has anything to do with airplanes, don't you, Joey? I sure do, he admitted. Say, Miss Vicky, how long did it take you to take you to solo? Were you nervous the first time? Vicky smiled. See here, young man, if we start talking flying, you'll never get back to work. I guess you're right, the boy said, laughing. It wouldn't do to lose this job now that I'm getting ready to be a flyboy for real. Vicky said goodbye and promised to look Joey up again. Then she walked back to the airport building. Even though it had become a common everyday sight to her, an airport waiting room never failed to fascinate Vicky. And this one at Tampa was particularly interesting. Passengers from incoming planes carried heavy coats that they had worn when they had left the northern winter weather. Sometimes friends tanned and wearing gray-colored sports clothes, were waiting to greet them. Through the big picture window, she could see the air taxis waiting at one end of the field. Anyone who wished to fly across Tampa Bay to Clearwater or St. Petersburg or across the Caribbean to Cuba or Mexico could charter a plane like the the one Joey's instructor, Steve Miller's flew. Everything seemed so easygoing and carefree here, Vicky thought, in this sun-kissed land where the breeze was scented with the perfume of flowers. She stopped at the Federal Reservation counter where she had left her bag, picked it up, and then went out of the building's main entrance to look for a taxi. Twenty minutes later, the taxi pulled up at the curtains home, and Vicky, carrying her bag and topcoat, stepped out. She stopped for a moment after she had paid her fare to look at the dignified old house. It was a red brick, old-fashioned, and comfortable-looking surra- comfortable-looking.
surrounded by a close-clipped lawn, rambling flower gardens, and two tall palm trees flanked, flanked it on either side. She opened the iron gate and walked down the flagstone path to the front door. Before she could ring the bell, the door flew open, and there stood Louise, looking more grown-up than Vicky remembered her, with her dark hair done up and a big smile of welcome on her beautiful, delicately tanned face. Louise had written that she was doing social work, but Vicky found it hard to believe that this lovely, vicacious girl would confine her energies to anything so unglamorous. Vicky, how wonderful to see you again. Louise hugged her and then stepped back and appraised her. You've changed. Vicky laughed. It's pretty wonderful to see you too, but you don't have to sound so accusing. You've changed yourself. You're so poised now, Vicky, in that lovely blue uniform. I remember you used to be shy. Still shy sometimes, and I am delighted to be at your house. You were so darling to ask me, are you actually a social worker these days? You, you are Southern Bill? Only a volunteer, whenever the agency needs me. But tell me, a tall slim figure ran slightly down a broad staircase at the end of the entrance hall. That's enough of this college, uni college reunion stuff, Louise. Introduce your kid sister. Louise laughed and apologized and introduced Nina. Nina had managed to tell Vicky, all in one breath, that she was the only was only a year younger than Louise, and had left college to take a fashion job in Tampa. In a Tampa dress shop, and thought the flight stewardess have the most glamorous job in the world. When Vicky said her job involved some serious know-how about aviation and practical nursing and dealing with people in general and was not entirely glamorous, Nina refused to believe it. Sheer glamour, she insisted, even better than being an actress, I'm sure of it. Louise looked amused and, sh and suggested that they had better invite their guests into the house. The girls showed Vicky to the guest room upstairs and waited chattering about the plans they made up for her. While she unpacked the few things she had brought with her and changed from her flight uniform into a bright cotton afternoon dress. Better bring more dresses on your next flight, Nina warned. You'll need them for the parties and going out. They went back downstairs to the living room, which in the late afternoon was filled with cool shadows and perfumed with the fresh scent of flowers wafting in through the open windows. I'll fix us something cool to drink, Nina said, and disappeared. A few minutes later, she reappeared with a tall, frosty pitcher of lemonade and three glasses on a tray. What does your sister do, Vicky? Nina wanted to know. College? Career? Romance? Vicky explained that Ginny was still in high school and that her plans for the future kept changing from day to day as some new idea took her fancy. Louise wanted to hear news about the castle, the big ramblings, rambling home of Vicky's family in Fairview, Illinois, which got its name from the fact that its, its tower and balcony really did resemble a castle, and which Louise had visited as often as she could when she and Vicky were classmates at State University. 
She asked about Mrs. Barr's rock garden, Freckles, the Barnes, the Barr Spaniel, and what news Professor Barr brought home from the university. Vicky answered the torrent of questions as best as she could, for it had been several weeks since she had been home. The three girls chattered, chatted on without noticing the time and were surprised when a cheerful male voice broke into their conversation. Well, where is she? Where is our little flyer? A gray-haired man of medium height stood in the doorway to the room. He was dressed in a dark blue business suit and wore heavy horn-rimmed glasses. Dad, Louisa cried, jumping up. Vicky got to her feet and went forward, smiling to take Mr. Curtin's outstretched hand. He was just the sort of father she'd expect. She expected Louise to have, a substantial businessman, soft-spoken, cheerful, cordial, and good-humored. The smile gave Vicky in return. The smile he gave Vicky in return was the very essence of Southern hospitality. It is nice of you to take in a stranger, Vicky said. You won't be a stranger in Tampa very long, Vicky. Mister Curtin answered. We'll see to that. Won't we, girls? He sat down and lighted, and lighted a cigarette. You came to town at just the right time, he said, exhaling a spiral of smoke that drifted upward and hung in the golden ray of the late afternoon sunlight, which slanted through the window. You'll be here for Gasparo's Pirate Festival. Dad's on the committee, Nina said excitedly. He's going to be a pirate, and Louise and I are going to be Senoritas. Vicky smiled mischievously. I'm afraid you don't look like a pirate to me, Mr. Curtin. You just wait until you see me in a big black beard and a patch over one eye and a bandana tied around my head. Maybe you'll change your mind. Dad looks very simply ferocious, Louise grinned. Why, he even frightens me. The four were talking and laughing gamely. When the housekeeper came in to announce dinner, Mrs. Tucker was a large, comfortable-looking woman with gray hair rolled into a knot at the top of her head and wearing a crispy, starched white dress. They followed her into the dining room and seated themselves at the table. I'm sorry Mother isn't here to meet you, Vicky, Louise said, as the housekeeper served the steaming dishes of food, but she got a wire the other day saying that Grandma was ill, and she flew out to Oregon to see her. Vicky will meet her when she returns, Mr. Curtin said, for I trust, young lady, he said to Vicky, that you will consider this your home whenever you are in Tampa. The pleasant conversation continued as they leisurely ate the delicious dinner, and inevitably it returned to the coming festival. One of the stewardess was talking about it before we left New York, Vicky said, she said it was some sort of Mardi Gras, but that's all about, but that's all I know. It's an old tradition with us, Mr. Curtin explained. I think you might be interested in how it all started. Certainly I would, Vicky answered. It sounds intriguing. Well, about 200 years ago, in 1783, to be exact, an officer in the Spanish Navy named Jose Gaspar mutinied and seized his ship, his warship, the Florida 
Blanca. Then he turned pirate, changed his name to Gasparilla, meaning the little Gaspar, and began to prey on the merchant ships of all nations. He made his headquarters in the islands around Tampa Bay, and whenever a merchant came by, he rushed out, captured it, killed the crew, stole the cargo, then burned the ship. And this cutthroat is a patron of rogue, patron of rogue, of Tampa. Nina put it. Louise thinks it's too disgraceful. Oh, really, Nina? I never quite said that. Mister Curtin laughed as he went on with the story. Be that as it may, old Gasparilla's luck held out for thirty-eight years. Then one day in eighteen twenty-one, he made a fatal mistake. He pounced on a lone brig, which he thought was an unarmed merchant, but it turned out to be an American warship, the USS Enterprise, and Gasparilla's goose was cooked. Within minutes, the ship was a mass of flames. So then Avery finally captured him? Not Gasparilla. The old devil wrapped a heavy iron chain around his waist and leaped into the sea, still brandishing his cutlass. And now Daddy is going to be a lovely... Bloodthirsty pirate, too, Nina said imperishly. Mr. Curtin smiled. I'd better tell Vicky the rest of the story before she thinks we're all crazy down here. You see, he continued, since Gasparilla had made Tampa Bay his headquarters, we decided to use him as an excuse for a mid-winter festival and a week of fun. A group of Tampa businessmen formed an organization called Yemitsi's Crew. You spell... Crew with a capital K and an E on the end. Aside from the festival week, we are sedate and, and sedate as any ro rotary club. You're not very sedate when you capture Tampa, Louis said. No, Mr. Curtin admitted with a grin. I'm afraid that for the particular week, we turn into little boys again playing pirate. A few years ago, we raised the money to build a full-rigged sailing ship on the an exact replica of the Gasparilla's Florida Blanca. On Monday morning this year, it will be February. It will be February 10th. We all dress up in pirate costumes, sail the Jose Gasparilla up in the bay, and capture Tab Tampa. Then for the rest of the week, everybody has fun dancing in the streets, balls, torchlights, parades. Then on Saturday, we sail away and give Tampa a chance to catch its breath until next year. Vicky's eyes were shining with excitement as Louis's father finished his story. It does sound like fun. I can't... I just can't wait. Nina and I are going to ride on one of the floats in the big torchlight parade, Louisa said, her own eyes sparkling. We'll all be dressed up like Spanish senoritas, mantillas, shawls, and red dresses. And red roses clutched in our pearly, in our pearly teeth, Nina insisted. Why can't I be a senorita too? Vicky demanded. That is, her face fell as she thought, as her face fell at the thought that she might miss the fun. If I were not in New York that day, whoever heard of a blonde, blue-eyed senorita? Mister Curtin teased. I have Nina, in the north of Spain, Dad. Louisa interrupted. Tell Vicky about the old Spanish bulbaloons. Mr. Curtin explained that a collection of ancient gold coins gathered 
together from all over the world, were currently on display at the Museum of New York. And since pirates and old gold coins seemed to go hand in hand, he continued, we thought there would be an additional, an added attraction for the festival if we could put them on display here in the Royal Palm Hall during Gasparilla week. So I wrote New York, and it's turned out that we are in luck. The exhibit is scheduled to close in New York just a few days before our festival opens, and they agreed to let us exhibit them, so at least one part of the Gasparilla's festival will be authentic this year. Ye mystic Keats may, may be counterfeit pirates, but those gold coins will be the real thing, very real indeed. The table talk drifted from another sh drifted to another subjects to other subjects the Florida beaches, the Florida sun, Vicky and Louise's school days at State University, and after dinner, Vicky and the two curtain girls took a short walk along the moonlight moonlit palm lined streets. Later, when Vicky had said goodnight and slipped into bed, she realized that the excitement of the day Seeing a romantic new city and meeting an old friend had made her pleasantly tired. She dropped off to sleep almost as soon as her blonde hair touched the cool linen pillow, and her dreams were filled with the visions of pirate ships and pirate gold. So chapter 2. A Strange Trip Three mornings later, Vicky, Kathy, and Johnny Baker strode across the concrete upon in front of Gate 5 at Idlewild to board the ship for their return run to Tampa. Today the skies were clear, but the wind blowing across the huge airfield carried the crisp cold light of winter, and small snowdrifts were still piled up against the heavy wire, the heavy wire fencing that enclosed the pa passenger area. Where's Captain March? Vicky asked Johnny. He's late this morning, and that's not like him. The captain's already on board, the co-pilot said. He boarded her in the hangar. What's the matter, Kathy laughed. Doesn't he trust the ground crew to see that she's ready to fly? Don't ask me, Johnny replied, grinning good-naturedly. I'm just the co-pilot. I take over the controls when the captain tells me to, and I don't ask questions. Then one of these days, if I'm good, if I'm a good boy, I'll be captain myself. I'll know all of the answers. But of course I won't tell them to the rest of the crew, so there's no use in asking me anything, not now, or in a couple of years from now, when I've gotten another stripe on my sleeve and I'm sitting up there in the captain's seat. You're a big help, Kathy scoffed. I told you I was, Johnny said. As the three entered the plane from the landing ramp, Captain March emerged from the flight deck, followed by a stocky man wearing a blue business suit under a light gray top coat. This is Mr. Jones, he said, making the introductions. Miss Barr, Miss Sloan, Miss ba Mr. Baker. Mr. Jones nodded briefly at each of the crew members in turn. Mr. Jones is making the flight with us, the captain explained. Then he said to Mr. Jones, just take any seat you like, sir. These young ladies will see that you get any you get anything you want. Mr. Jones removed his top coat and handed it to Kathy and sat down in the aisle seat opposite the door. He took a folded newspaper from his jacket pocket and began to read. Captain March and Johnny Baker disappeared through the forward doors that led to the flight deck. 
Kathy had carried Mr. Jones' topcoat to the wardrobe amidship. Wardrobe amidship. Vicky followed her down the aisle. It looks as if something is up, she said in a low voice. I don't go to the movies for nothing, Kathy remarked. That Mr. Jones has a cop has cop written all over him. We must be carrying something pretty important today. A shipment of diamonds, maybe? Or gold? Gold. Suddenly Vicky remembered the antique gold coins that were being sent from New York from the New York Museum to the private festival in Tampa. Could they possibly have been aboard this flight? That could be that could account for Mr. Jones and the captain riding the ship out from the hangar. And especially if, as Kathy had suggested, Mr. Jones had cop written all over him. Oh well, she shrugged off the thought. If they were carrying a shipment of gold, she'd never know about it. Vicky looked at the passenger list, which she still had under her arm. There was Mr. Jones' name all right all along the along with an assortment of other typical American names. Smith, Cooper, Levin, Carpenter, Morris. One name caught her eye. She pointed out to Kathy. F.R. Eaton Smith. My, that sounds important. Who do you think he's supposed to be? Sounds English, Kathy commented. But let's go. Here they come. An attendant had opened the wire gate, and now the passengers and now the passengers for the flight were streaming across the apron up to the loading ramp. Vicky stood by the plane's open doorway, the passengers list in her hand, and checked off names one by one as the passengers entered. You are Mr. Cooper. Vicky made a check be besides his name. Oh yes, Mr. Cooper. You're bound for Atlanta. Atlanta was their one stop en route to Tampa. Vicky studied the man's face quickly quickly but carefully. Part of her job was to make her passengers feel welcome aboard by remarking, remembering their names. The men walked down the aisle and took a seat by the window. One by one, the passengers filed through the doorway. An elderly couple, a woman with a little girl, a young man and woman in their early twenties who displayed all the familiar outward appearances of being honeymooners. The next man had a distinguished air about him. He was Portly and dignified, well-dressed. His rimless glasses were so highly polished that Vicky could, could not see his eyes behind them, only brilliant reflections of sunlight. I am Mr. Eaton Smith. His voice was as dignified as his appearance. So this was F.R. Eaton Smith. His appearance certainly fit, fitted the name. She turned to the next passenger. He was so thin... He was a thin, frail old man, wearing a battered felt hat over his badly trimmed gray hair and a shabby overcoat with a frayed collar. He clutched a battered violin case under his arm, as though he had been unwilling to trust it with the rest of his luggage in the cargo compartment. He certainly didn't look, Vicky thought, like a man who was accustomed to first-class air travel. Good morning, Vicky said brightly. Your name, sir? The old gentleman looked startled. I am almost Tyrell, miss. He looked around at the big cabin. Where, where, which seat is mine? Take as any seat you like, Mr. Tyrell, Vicky said. But if you want to look out at the scenery, I suggest you sit next to a window. We're going to have a clear, we're going to have clear weather all the way.
Finally, the last of the passengers trooped on aboard. The door was closed and the landing ramp wheeled away by the ground crew. And Captain Marks started his engines. One by one, the big four-bladed propellers whined as they turned over slowly, then coughed and spat small puffs of blue exhaust blue exhaust smoke and suddenly burst into a steady roar, the revolving blades making bright, shiny disks that gleamed and sparkled in the morning sun. The big ship vibrated with the pounding of the airstreams against her sides, straining at the wheel brakes like a racehorse impatient for the start. At last, Captain March taxied out to the end of the runway, waiting for a signal from the tower, and when he got it, gunned the ship down the concrete strip and lifted her into the air as smoothly and as gently as a bird. Once the airplane was off the ground and droning up, droning up to a cruising altitude, and the no-smoking, fastened seatbelt signs had been blinked out, Vicky and Kathy made their way up and down the aisle, chatting with the passengers, offering them chewing gum and magazines, and doing everything they could to make them comfortable and put them at their ease. Mr. Eaton Smith interested Vicky particularly. Maybe she thought it was his curious double name with the hyphen in the middle. Now with a hat now with his hat off, she could see that his large Romanian looking head had a little bald on top, and Vicky was again impressed by his air of dignity. When she came to his aisle seat, she said politely, Anything I can get for you, Mr. Eaton Smith? A cup of coffee? A magazine, perhaps? Mr. Eaton Smith smiled. It was a curious mechanical smile, polite, but certainly not warm or cordial. No, thank you. Then he added, I think we'll have a pleasant flight today. Yes, Vicky said. Clear skies all the way. I can see that you are a veteran air traveler, sir. Mr. Eaton Smith seemed flattered. Yes, I think I might call myself that since I've flown just about all over the globe of ours. Oh, Vicky said. Are you a foreign correspondent, a writer? Mr. Eaton beamed. No, but you're close. I'm a travel lecturer, and I operate a small travel agency in Tampa, just to have a sort of headquarters, as you might say. Just ring if there's anything I can do for you, Vicky said. I certainly will, and thank you. The frail old man sitting across the aisle from Mr. Eaton Smith was certainly not a veteran of air traveler. Vicky could tell that at a glance he kept, he actually looked frightened as he sat tensely in his seat, still wearing his overcoat with his violin case clutched between his knees. A breathtaking paranoia was unfolding just below the window next to which he was sitting. He was paying no attention to it starting intensely at the back of the seat in front of him. Are you feeling all right, sir? Vicky asked gently. May I take your overcoat? No, no, thank you, miss. I'm cold. Vicky bent over him anxiously. Why is this man half fainting? Are you feeling ill, sir? Hungry, he whispered. Just a minute. Vicky hurried to the galley. Obviously, Mr. Terrell could not wait until lunch was served. She placed a sandwich and a cup of coffee on the tray and carried it back to the old man. There, she said, that should make you feel better. He was so exhausted, or so nervous or ill, that his thin, heavily veined hands shook, and Vicky had to help him hold his cup of coffee. She did not attempt to talk to him, 
as he ate, and when he had finished, he smiled at Vicky gratefully. I feel better now. That's good, but why did you let yourself grow so weak? She knew it was against the rules to ask personal questions, but she felt a, general, a genuine concern for this frail old man. You didn't have breakfast, did you? No, a tremor seemed to pass over his face. And what a sensitive face it was, Vicky thought. She had known musicians before. She knew what dreamy and practical people most of the old ones were. Was this man starving? His suit coat underneath his overcoat was worn and th threadbare. His thin gray hands, hairs looked as though it hadn't been cut for, in months. His ticket showed that he was going to Tampa. The Florida sunshine will do you a lot of good, Mr. Terrell. Are you visiting your family in Tampa or friends? He raised his weak, pale blue eyes to hers. All the family I have is my grandson, and he's in a school in New York. Yes, I'm going to visit friends. He hesitated and grew silent. I didn't mean to pry, Vic, he said hastily. It's a long flight, and I just thought you'd like to talk. But now perhaps we'd better wait until after lunch. She looked at her watch. That won't be long now, and you can have a good hot meal. She removed the tray from his lap and started to walk away, but the old violinist plucked at her sleeve. Please don't leave, miss. I'm glad of a chance to talk. You don't know how lonesome I am, and you're the first kind person. The eyes in his worn face were pleading. Vicky sat down in the empty seat beside him. Poor frightened little scarecrow of a man. She touched the violin case. You must be a musician, she said, she said encouragingly. This isn't a very good instrument, just an old fiddle. I had to sell my good violin to pay for. for. Again, his voice broke off, and he fell silent. You'll be in Tampa just in time for the Gasparilla Festival, Vic, he said, trying to cheer the old man up. The what? The Pirate Festival. Didn't you hear about it when you planned, your tri planned this trip? It's the funnest time of the whole year. The man sighed. It isn't as if I had exactly planned this trip. Why, it sounds as if you didn't want to go to Tampa at all, Mr. Terrell. But if I... The old man's voice sounded scared. For the instant, for an instant, he closed his tired eyes. I'm talking too much. Excuse me, miss. Vicky got up. Miss, what's your name? Victoria Barr. But all my friends call me Vicky. Thank you, Vicky. Mr. Terrell relaxed in his seat and closed his eyes. As Vicky turned to go down the aisle to the gallery, she noticed out of the corner of her eye that Mr. Eaton Smith, from his seat across the way, was looking at her and Mr. Terrell with a curious, with a curious interest. The next moment, the dignifying gentleman turned his attention again to the magazine which he had been reading. Now it was time for lunch, and Vicky and Kathy had their hands full preparing lunches for more than 60 passengers who were on the flight today. She glanced out the window. The ship was flying above Virginia now, where scattered white patches of snow were melting in the brown fields. Soon they would be approaching the green fields of the Carolinas. There wasn't much time to get the passengers fed. Vicky forgot everything in her concentration on the job. Vicky showed... Vicky worked her way up the aisle of the plane, serving the luncheons, carrying one, carrying one tray at a time, making sure that each passenger had a cushion on his lap 
upon to rest it, inquiring whether he, if he would care for coffee or tea. When she came to Mr. Eaton Smith's seat, she noticed that he had moved across the aisle and was now sitting next to Mr. Next to old Mr. Terrell. The old man was dozing, his eyes closed. Mr. Eaton Smith was putting a finger to his lip. This gentleman seems to be ill, he whispered. I thought I'd better move over here and see if there was anything I could do for him. That's very kind of you, sir, Vicky said, as she placed Mr. Eaton Smith's lunch tray on his lap. Old Mr. Terrell's eyes fluttered, and their glance caught Vicky for a split second. They looked as they looked like a begging puppy dog eyes, she thought. In a few minutes, she had brought the tray for the old man and helped him steadily steady it on his lap. He picked up his fork and began to toy listlessly with his food, keeping his eyes fixed upon the plate. Back in the gallery, cleaning up the remains of the lunch, Vicky couldn't get her mind free of the shabby old man. Promptly on schedule, Captain Mark circled his plane over Tampa and landed. The mysterious Mr. Jones was the first person to get off when the ground crew pushed the landing ramp up to the door. He spoke briefly to one of the crewmen on the ground, and the two of them stepped around to the tail of the plane next to the baggage compartment door. Then Vicky saw the rest of her passengers off the ship and said goodbye to each one of them as she was leaving. I hope you had a pleasant trip, Mr. Peterson. Ride with us again. Mr. Le Levi, goodbye. Mr. Harper, she saw old Mr. Terrell coming towards her, still clutching his battered violin case. Close behind him was Mr. Eaton Smith. Goodbye, sir. Have a pleasant stay in Tampa. Good, goodbye, Miss Barr. He glanced back over his shoulder for a moment in the direction of his seat, and when his eyes returned to Vicky, they held an odd, hopeless look. Thank you again. Behind him, Mr. Eaton Smith was visibly impatient at the delay. He brushed against the old violinist's shoulder, and Mr. Terrell, feeling the slight pressure, lowered his head and seemed almost to scurry through the exit door. Speaking mechanically to the other passengers as they left, Vicky kept an eye on the tired old man as she as he went down the ramp and across the apron. Mr. Eaton Smith following at his elbow. She wondered who was going to meet almost Terrell, but he walked straight on through the group of people who were obviously waiting to greet incoming friends and was soon swallowed up in the crowd. With the last of the passengers gone, Vicky and Kathy went rapidly through the big cabin on a final inspection tour. The empty seats were re reclined at all angles. Pillows, magazines, and newspapers were scattered all over them in confusion. At one seat, she picked up a small package that had been forgotten. She'd taken it to the lost, she'd take it to the lost and found desk in the terminal building. In the seat that old Mr. Terrell had occupied, something peculiar caught her eye. It was a Tampa visitor's guide, part of the travel leisure, travel, literature, and other reading matter, other reading matters carried in the plain seat pocket but it was folded in the shape of a sort of pyramid and was standing upright on the seat. Odd, Vicky thought, and reached out over to pick it up. 
As she did so, she noticed that the exposed page was an advertisement for a restaurant located in Ubar City, Tampa's old Latin Quarter. The restaurant was called the Granda. Garanda, and under the name was the slogan, the liveliest and most popular meeting place in Tampa's farmed, famed Ubar City. The words meeting place were underlined by a wavery, wavery pencil scroll. Had the old man left this as a signal, she remembered his futive over-the-shoulder glance as he was leaving the plane. Maybe he had a job at the at the Gran, Granada playing in the orchestra, but why hadn't he come straight out and said so? Vicky wrinkled up her pit, her pretty brows in a puzzled frown. Was something strange going on here, or was that just, or was she just imagining things? She tucked and folded it into her jacket pocket and went on with her work. And the name of chapter three is An Odd Offer. Vicky said goodbye to Captain March, Johnny, and Kathy, and strolled leisurely through the air terminal waiting room, watching the million crowds of people always fascinated her. One could certainly pick out the Yankees, who had just come in, she thought. The northern winter parlor contrasted sharply with the deep sun-browned skins of the local residents. It suddenly struck Vicky that she was a Yankee herself. I have to go to the beach and start working on my own suntan, she thought, the first time I have a day off. A rack of colorful picture postcards caught her eye. Gosh, here it is, her second trip to Florida, and she hadn't sent a single card. That was the first thing any respectable Floridian visitor did. She selected a dozen of the most exotic cards, those that had depicted wide sandy beaches, palm linden streets, and moon, moonlight over Tampa Bay, and the Jose Gasparilla sailing up the bay with hundreds of bright pennants flying from its mast, and its deck crowded with the mystic crew. Leaning on the counter, she addressed one to her father, one to her mother, and one to Ginny, who was adored, who adored getting mail in her own name. One to Bill Avery, and one to each of the girls who shared her apartment in New York. Then, just for fun, she addressed one to Mr. Curtin, to Nina, and to Louise. On each, on each of these last three, she wrote, "I'm so glad to be here. Love, Vicky." She bought stamps from the machine on the counter, and mailed the cards in the postal drop nearby, and strolled on the main door to hail a taxi. On her way, she passed the terminal snack bar. An ice cream soda, it suddenly occurred to her, would taste just about right on this hot day, on a hot day like this. She pushed open the swinging glass door and entered the dim air-conditioned room. The first person she saw was Joy Watson, sitting in one of the booths. She started towards him, then checked herself when she saw that another man was sitting in the seat opposite to him. Vicky decided not to intrude in what was probably man talk. She slipped into the next booth with her back to the man who was sitting with Joey. The man was speaking in a low voice, but it was deep-toned and resonant and resonated. The man spoke with a soft Spanish accent and had a particular almost 
indiscernible lisp. Since he was separated from Vicky only by a thin plywood partition, she couldn't help hearing every word he said. She paid no attention to the conversation and ordered her soda from the waitress. Then a sentence caught her ear. And you're such a nice kid, Joey, that I want to help you. You're smart and ambitious, and I like to help boys like you. But why would you want to help me? Joey's voice was puzzled. You never saw me before. And why, I don't even know your name. Now that does surprise me a little, Joey. With all the business I do with the Federal Airlines, I'm surprised you don't know the name of Raymond Duke. I... I think I have seen your name on cargo consignments, Joey said hesitantly. Sure you have, kid, the man said. I'm one of the biggest importers in Tampa, and you can bet that I've heard about Joey Watson. Your boss, Van... Van... what's his name? Van Lash, Lasher? Sure. Van Lasher says you're the smartest man he's got. He tells me you're saving up for flying lessons and that you need money real bad. Well, I can fix that, kid. If you work for me, I can put a lot of money your way. Vicky's ears pricked up. The, this conversation was certainly taking a curious turn. Now she began to listen intently, careful to catch each word. She felt responsible for Joey Watson and the promotion... Pro, and the proposition this man seemed to be trying to make to him sounded mighty strange indeed. Now, in my business, the man went on, I can always use a smart boy. Think you'd like to work for me? I pay mighty well. Gee, Mr. Duke, Joey said, I've already got a good job. I like working around airplanes, and I'm already starting to take flying lessons, or I'll be starting any day now. No, thanks a lot, but I don't think I'd like to leave the airline. Who said anything about leaving the airline, kid? What I want you to do is work for me in your spare time. Do odd jobs, run errands, things like that. Why, I've got a job coming up that will pay you... How does a hundred dollars sound? A hundred dollars, Joey almost shouted. Not so loud, boy. Not so loud, the man cautioned. I don't go around offering good jobs to everybody, I see. I don't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry pestering me for work. This is confidential, just between you and me. Gee, Joey said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? A hundred smackers would sure pay for a lot of flying lessons, boy. At the rate you're going, you'll be an old man before you get your pilot's license. Look, Joey, I'll tell you what to do. You agree to work for me, and I'll give you 25 bucks in advance. Vicky heard the man's flip some crisp bills. Look at that kid. That's just how to show I can that's just to show I trust you. And there's plenty more where that came from. Gosh, Mr. Duke, I have to think it over. Nothing doing, Vicky heard Mr. Duke say. When I make a man a good proposition at this, I expect him to say yes or no. Besides, I've got a job that needs to be done right away. Now what do you now what do you say, boy? That money looks pretty good, doesn't it? I bet you never saw that much before in your life. So what is it? Yes or no? Gee, Mr. Duke, Joey's voice was wavering with indecision. I honest, 
I have to think it over. Okay, Mr. D okay. Mr. Duke's voice rose slightly and seemed to Vicky to have an angry, exasperated tone. But look here, kid. You kept your lip you keep your lip buttoned about this. If word got around about me having a good job open, every boy in Tampa would be after me. So not a word to anybody, okay? Okay, Joey said. I'll let you know. You do that, but remember what I said about keeping quiet. Mr. Duke got to his feet and picked his Panamera, Panama hat off the hat track by the booth and started for the door. He was tall, thin, sleek, and slightly overdressed. The shoulders of his jacket were just a little too padded. Vicky thought, and the lapels at Vicky thought, and the lapels a little too pointed. His hair was thick and black and curly. His long face was deeply tan, and a hair-thin mustache spread across his upper lip. On impulse, Vicky stood up and casually followed him out the door of the snack bar and across the terminal building. When he stepped out into the sunshine of the taxi loading ramp, she hung back as he whistled for a cab. A taxi pulled up, and before Mr. Duke got in, he said to the driver, Granada Restaurant, Ubar City. Granada Restaurant, Ubar City, Vicky. Vicky's hand felt felt for the travel folder in her jacket pocket. Why, that was the restaurant the old man, old mister, what was his name? Tyrell had tried to call her attention to, if he really had been trying to call her attention to it. By leaving the folder, by leaving the folder on his seat in such a particular way, with the words "meeting place" underlined, Vicky shook her head in bewilderment. It, it all seems too curious to be a coincidence. The frightened old man on the plane, the travel folder, and now this odd-looking man making such strange propositions to Joey, and then going to the very same restaurant. It seemed too curious to be a coincidence, but for the life of her, Vicky couldn't make any sense of it. Maybe she'd better go back to the snack bar and have a talk with Joey. She, when she entered the air-conditioned room again, the booth at which Joey and the strange man had been sitting was empty. Vicky shrugged and smiled to herself. Vicky Barr, with your imaginations, you ought to write a mystery story. You see deep, dark plots every time you look around. You would be spending your time better at the beach, getting a Florida suntan. She thrust all suspicions from her mind and went out to find a taxi. Chapter 4 Pirate Gold One of the nicest things about Vicky's new York Tampa assignment was staying at the Curtis' home. Yesterday afternoon, after Vicky had come from the airport, she and Louise had gotten had gone to the beach for a swim and began to work on Vicky's Florida suntan. After dinner, Mr. Curt Mr. Curtin had taken the three girls to the movies. Appropriately enough, it had been a picture about pirates. You see, Mr. Curtin had said, smiling, we're real pirate-minded here in Tampa. We want to give you tourists the real good run for, the mi run for their money. Vicky loved the guest room, which was now called Vicky's room, with its flowered curtains and big four-poster 
and its big four, four po poster bed. And everyone in the family, including Mrs. Tucker, the housekeeper, were understanding about hard-working airline stewardesses and why they sometimes had to sleep in late in the morning. Now the three girls were at lunch, brunch for Vicky, at a small table on the side of the porch. The sun was shining brilliantly through the treetops and making little puddles of golden light on the tiles of the floor. The air was still and held a heavy perfume of oleander and hibiscus. Up in the trees, songbirds tweeted merrily. Birds are smarter than people, Vicky thought. All they, they all go south for the winter. You'll be back in Tampa tomorrow, won't you, Vicky? Louise asked. Not tomorrow, Vicky corrected her. Sunday, and then one more trip and I'll have a few days rest leave. Perfect. We'll spend the whole time at Clearwater Beach, just relaxing and lying in the sun, Nina said enthusiastically. Daddy will come take us out to Yarbor City for dinner, and you'll come to my shop and see all the lovely things we have. Then we'll... Nina, dear, Louise interrupted. Vicky says this is a rest leave. Nina shook her silky black hair impatiently. Oh, who wants to get rest when there are so many more exciting things to do? I thought you had a job, Vicky said with a grin. Sure I have, and I work mighty hard at it, too. But there's always time to have fun. This young dynamo wears me out, Vic Louise laughed. I have work to do, too, you know, Nina. And Vicky has to rest, but we'll manage to have fun. Don't you worry. All three were chatting gaily when Mr. Curtin stepped out through the open French doors onto the tile floor of the porch. His face looked drawn and haggard, and worried wrinkles creased the skin around his eyes. Dad, Louisa cried, jumping up, whatever are you doing at doing home at noon? Come and sit down, Nina said solicitously. We're just finishing, but I imagine Mrs. Tucker can manage to find something for you. Mr. Curtin slumped into a high-backed wicker chair. An awful thing has happened, girls, he said. He took off his glasses with a nervous gesture, rubbing his eyes and ran his hand through his thinning gray hair. I am the chairman of the committee, and I feel responsible. But he stopped and shook his head. I don't know what to do about it. Louise ran to her father's side and took his hand, took his hand in hers. My goodness, Daddy, you look pale as a ghost. Whatever happened? Give me a cup of coffee, honey, Mr. Curtin said. I think I need something to steady my nerves. Louise ran to the kitchen when she returned with a steaming cup of coffee and her father had taken a few sips. Mr. Curtin took a deep breath and leaned back in his chair. When it happened, he said, I was so stunned. I just had to walk around for a while and think. Daddy, Nina said with her eyes wide, if you don't tell us what happened, we're all simply going to burst. Mr. Curtin managed a smile. Sorry, honey. I'm not thinking very straight. He paused for a moment, then continued. You remember I told you the other night about the collection of antique gold coins that my committee was bringing down here from New York to exhibit during the festival week? Well, the case from the museum was delivered to the ex exhibition hall this morning. Being the committee chairman, I was there to receive it. It was all secure and wrapped tightly around with steel bands. 
But when we opened it, we found that it was filled, not with gold coins, but with worthless pieces of scrap iron. Vicky's mouth dropped open. Speechless, Louise clapped her hands to her lips, and her eyes grew wide. Nina said, Daddy, that's impossible. Yes, that's what you'd think, her father replied. Had the box been tampered with, Louise asked after a minute. It didn't seem so, Mr. Kern said. As I say it, it was taped with steel bands, and the shipping label from the museum in New York was intact. It had come down from New York yesterday by Air Express. Air Express? Vicky almost screamed the question. Then it might have come down our flight. Suddenly she remembered the mysterious Mr. Jones, whom Kathy had said, cop written all over him. And then there was the odd fact that he and Captain March had boarded the plane in the hangar. Before she could marshal these confusing thoughts in her mind, Mr. Curtin went on. That's right, Vicky. Air Express. The case stayed in the warehouse out at the airport overnight, under heavy guard, I might add, and was delivered to the exhibition hall about ten o'clock this morning. And it hadn't been tampered with, opened up? Vicky asked the question again. If it had, Mr. Kern said, it was the cleverest of tampering jobs I've ever seen. What what were the coins worth? Vicky asked. From the standpoint of their value as antiques, Mr. Curtin answered, they were priceless. For the gold they contained, figuring gold at $35 an ounce, possibly $100,000, maybe twice that. Phew. But who could have stolen the gold? Nina asked. Lots of people, Vicky said. The people at the museum who packed it, the transfer people who tucked it into the airport, the cargo crew at the New York airport, the cargo crew here at Tampa, the truckers who delivered it from the field to the ex exhibition hall. Heaven knows how many people could have got that gold shipment. At any rate, Mr. Curtin said, the Tampa police called the FBI. If the FBI can't clear it up, I don't know who can. Chapter 5. The FBI Takes Over after Mr. Curtin had eaten a hurried lunch and departed for the committee headquarters to await any new developments in the gold coin mystery, Vicky and her two hostesses went for a stroll through the ornate flower gardens that surrounded the big brick house. Look, Vicky, did you ever see such a gorgeous camillas in your life? And just look at these wonderful poinsettias. They just really simply... They're just simply mother's pride and joy. Did you know that poinsettias were invented? I mean, actually invented by a man up in Charleston named Mr. Poinsettia? I don't rightly know quite how he did it, but he crossed one flower with another, and Nina rattled on and on about the flowers that grew in such brilliant profusion in the gardens. Vicky nodded absently and tried her best to be interested paying what she hoped were the right compliments at the right time. But she couldn't seem to get her mind off the theft of the gold shipment, and that her plane might have been carrying the valuable coins. Miss Vicky? Oh, Miss Vicky. It was Mrs. Tucker calling from the porch steps. Miss Vicky, you are wanted on the phone. Vicky hurried up the garden path, followed by Louise and Nina. She picked up the telephone in the hall. Vicky Barr speaking. Oh, hello, Captain March. 
but I thought we weren't taking off until 3.30. Oh, yes. Yes, of course I can. A half hour. Yes, sir. Goodbye. What's up, Vicky? I don't know. That was Captain March, chief pilot of my plane. I have to report in half an hour to the airport manager's office. Nina's hands flew up to her mouth. Do you suppose it has anything to do with the... the... Vicky had to smile at the younger girl's excitement. If you mean with the creative gold that was stolen yesterday, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Now I have to go change and run. Fifteen minutes later, Vicky was again in the lower hallway, dressed in her flight uniform and with her blue flight bag in her hands. My convertible's out front, Louise said. Hop in and I'll have you at the airport in no time. I'm coming too, Nina declared. The three girls piled in the sleek little car and in minutes they were whistling through the city streets. Then they left the town behind them and were rolling along the causeway, a long sandy strip that ran across the bright blue waters of Tampa Bay. Palm trees swished their heavy fawns in the gentle breeze that blew across the bay and silhouetted their umbrella-like tops against the blue sky. Banter and surf fishermen lined the pink-yellow sand of the beach. Nina, as usual, wanted to talk to and speculate about the mystery, but Louise remained silent, concentrating on her driving, and Vicky replied to Nina's avid questions with, I haven't had, I haven't any ideas, Nina, or, gosh, I wonder. At last they drew up before the entrance to the terminal building with five minutes to spare. Vicky hurriedly said, so long to her friends and went directly to the manager's office. Jonah Baker and Kathy Sloan were standing outside the closed door. Both were wearing their flight uniforms. Hi there. Vicky greeted them. What's up? You know as much as we do, Johnny said, puzzled. The skipper called the hotel about a half hour ago or so, and he left earlier this morning and asked us to show up here. Maybe you were hauling some important VIP back to New York this afternoon. But heck, that's no reason to rush us out here. Just before Kathy and I were going to take one last quick dip in the surf, Kathy's eyes lightened up. Maybe it's a plane load of movie stars. Or maybe some South American dictator who was kicked out last night, Johnny laughed. Vicky was pretty sure she knew why the crew was assembled here. She remembered Mr. Curtin saying, the Tampa police have called in the FBI. But she saw no point in mentioning this. Maybe for all she knew, the FBI was keeping the whole thing a deep, dark secret while they worked behind the scenes. So she simply said, If I have my choice between South American dictators and movie stars, I vote for movie stars. At that moment, the door to the manager's office opened to reveal Captain March. To reveal Captain March's frowning face, will you come in, please? The three filed in the door. Aside from Captain March, the only other person in the room was a short, heavy-built man in a tan, garbling suit. His crew-cut hair was salty black, and he had a tired look about his eyes. Sit down, sit down, he said, briskly but courteously. This shouldn't ha take more than a few minutes. Slowly, intently, his eyes went from one member of the crew to the other. Then he straightened his shoulders and rested his hands on the side of his desk, behind which he was sitting, and leaned slightly forward. My name is Coyle, John Coyle, Special Investigator, Federal B. 
Bureau of Investigation. Well, she'd been right, Vicky thought. She stole a sidelong glance at Kathy and Johnny. Both were open-mouthed with surprise. Captain March tells me that you were his crew on Federal Airlines. Flight 17, New York to Tampa yesterday, February 7th. The co-pilot and the two stewardess nodded automatically. Flight 17, Mr. Coyle continued in a droning voice, was carrying a specially valuable item of cargo, a crate of antique gold coins from the National Museum in New York, consigned to the Royal Palms Hall here in Tampa. These coins were to have been put on display next week during the Gasparilla Festival. It is impossible to estimate the value of the shipment. I can only say that it was priceless. Mr. Quayle looked at his audience in silence for a long moment. When that crate was delivered to the festival committee at Royal Palms, it appeared to be exactly as it were when it left the museum. But the committee members opened it, and there was found, and it was found to contain not the gold coins, but an e equivalent weight in iron steel scrap. John and Kathy gasped. Vicky looked at Captain March. His eyes were impassive, naturally. She thought he had been told about this before the rest of the crew. Only two possibilities have occurred to us, the FBI man went on, as to how the theft could have been accomplished. One, the crate could have been opened, the gold removed, and the scrap metal put in its place. Two, the crate of scrap could have been substituted for the crate of gold somewhere en route. Again, he paused to let his words sink in. As to the first possibility, there was no sign of tampering. As to the second, the crate undoubtedly had been packed and labeled at the museum in New York. The label was genuine. Again, Vicky noticed that Kathy and Johnny were listening in breathless silence. I might add, Mr. Quill went on, that a private detective employed by the museum, a man named Jones, accompanied the gold on your flight. But his presence was only routine. It is quite obvious that nothing could have happened to the shipment while your plane was in the air. The gold could only have been stolen under the following circumstances. At the museum in New York, en route from the museum to the Idlewild Airport, at Idlewild itself, while the cargo was being loaded into your plane, uh, Mr. Quill scratched his head, grinned a tired grin, What's the next number? Oh, yes. During your brief stop in Atlanta while flying in the warehouse at Tampa overnight, and finally, while it was being transferred to Royal Palms. He paused. Do I make myself clear thus far? Johnny Becker grinned. You lost me a couple of letters back. Everyone in the room took advantage of Johnny's wisecrack to let off their tension and laugh. At any rate, Mr. Quail said, that's the picture at the moment. Our agents are checking every possible angle in New York and Atlanta. I just wanted to have this talk with you, because after all, you were crewing the Flight 17, and I wondered if any of you had noticed anything out of the ordinary. May I ask, Captain March inquired, when the theft was discovered? Your plane landed at approximately 3.15 yesterday afternoon. The cargo was taken off the ship to the warehouse. So far as we know, very few people knew that such a consignment was coming, only the people on the festival committee, and so the airline didn't want to make any special production out of it. 
They figured it would be safer to let it go through the other air express. Nevertheless, Mr. Jones, the private detective who flew down with you, stayed in the Federal Airlines warehouse all last night. Now to answer your question, sir, Mr. Quill nodded at Captain March and resumed his narrative. A bonded air express trust picked up the crate this morning at 7.30 and delivered it to the Royal Palm Hall. There, the delivery of the crate was taken by the committee of the festival people, I believe Mr. Curtin was in charge, and it was opened. The crate was then found to contain only worthless scrap iron and bits of lead and steel. Vicky spoke up. Mr. Quill, I am a house guest at the Curtin's. I learned about this theft from him at lunch, not quite an hour ago. All heads turned in Vicky's direction, like those spectators at a tennis match. Did Mr. Curtin say anything that I haven't mentioned, the FBI, the FBI man asked? No, sir. He told me just about the same thing you have. All right, then. That is the entire picture. I might add that we have, investig we have interrogated all the airport employees and federal airline people on this end who could possibly have come into contact with the shipment. The only reason that I'm talking to you, the flight... The Flight 17 crew, as I said a moment ago, is to ask if you've noticed anything out of the usual routine, either before, during, or after the flight. He looked around slowly, his penetrating eyes going from Captain March to Johnny Baker to Kathy and finally to Vicky. As you are aware, Captain March spoke first, I knew that we were carrying an especially valuable cargo yesterday. Frankly, I didn't know what it was. I didn't ask. I didn't even look at the label. I met Mr. Jones at the prearranged, by prearrangement, in the hangar at Idlewell. This was an unusual arrangement, but it was the orders, and I didn't question it. Together, we supervised the loading of the crate into the cargo hold of my airplane. Then we got aboard, and I personally taxied the ship up to Gate 5. Then we picked up the rest of their crew, he nodded at it nodded his head at Vicky, Kathy, and Johnny, and as soon as we had taken on passengers, the luggage on board, we took off. Then we sat down at Tampa. Mr. Jones stayed with the plane until all the cargo had been loaded. I'm afraid, sir, he concluded, that this is everything I can tell you. Very good, Captain, Mr. Quayle said. Have you anything to add, Mr. Baker? I'm afraid I can't help you, sir, Johnny said. I boarded the plane after Captain March had taxied her out to the apron in front of Gate 5. When all the passengers had come aboard, the captain took her off and up to cruising altitude. That was 14,000 feet. He then turned the controls over to me, Bill, I mean Captain March, and I then took turns spelling each other at controls until we reached Atlanta, Atlanta on our one-stop en route. To Tampa. After leaving Atlanta, I took over control until we were ready for our approach to Tampa. The captain asked me if I would like to take her down, and I said I would. I touched down, I believe, at 3.17. Vicky couldn't help smiling at Johnny's serious recital. Serious recital. 3.15 wasn't close enough to sue him. It had to be on the nose. 3.17. And so, Mr. Baker... You saw nothing unusual? No, sir, I didn't. Mr. Quayle now turned to Kathy. And you, miss? I'm afraid I haven't anything to tell you either, sir. 
Miss Barr and I try to make the passengers comfortable. She usually works in the forward part of the ship while I work aft, and then it was time to serve lunch. Then we straightened up, and, well, I honestly didn't notice a thing out of the ordinary. Thank you, Mrs. Sloan, Mr. Quail said wearily. This is obviously a job that he had to do, and he wanted to get it over as quickly as possible. Did you notice anything that might help us, Miss Barr? Vicky couldn't erase the picture of the sick, tired old violinist out of her mind. It might be a sil- it might be silly, she told herself, but then again, she told the story exactly as it happened. From the time he had boarded the airplane, bewildered, hungry, almost starved, until he had gotten off, and she had found the folded travel brochure on his seat. But what makes you think this old music- musician had anything to do with the theft of the gold coins, Miss Barr? Mr. Quayle asked, obviously impatient. Nothing makes me think so, Mr. Quayle, Vicky answered. You asked me if anything unusual had happened on the flight. Mr. Terrell was unusual, and I thought I'd better tell you about him. Quite right, quite right, John Quayle said, nodding his head and fumbling with the file of papers on the desk in front of him. At the moment, I can't see how the incident would have any bearing on our investigation, but I'll keep it in mind. Captain March spoke up. May I ask a question, sir? The FBI man looked up curiously. Certainly, of course. What security precautions were taken here last night between the time we landed the crate of coins and the time they were picked up this morning? That's a fair question, Mr. Quill said. And since you were the crew that flew it down, I see no reason why you shouldn't know. As I told you, Mr. Jones, the private detective who flew down with you stayed in the warehouse with the shipment all night. So did the foreman of the warehouse crew, Mr. Van Lasher. He's an old and trusted employee, and I believe he's been with Federal for quite some time. In any case, the coin shipment was moved into a small room within the warehouse where valuable cargo is often kept under lock and key. No flights were due in that night, and no night crew were on duty. So Jones, so Jones and Lasher stayed with the shipment until the morning. Until the morning crews reported keeping awake with coffee and cigarettes. It was a lonely watch and pretty dull. Lasher admitted that he had dozed off lightly once or twice. Then Jones sheepishly admitted that he might have done the same thing. But they were both on guard all night, and one, of the, and one or the other was awake and alert at all times. And nothing happened? Only one thing. Shortly before midnight, Lasher had gone to an all-night lunch counter to refill the coffee jug, and Jones was in the warehouse by himself. The warehouse was dark, lighted only by a few scattered light bulbs. Then the warehouse then the warehouse wasn't locked, Captain asked. Oh yes, the whole warehouse is always locked, unless a night crew is working. The only people who had keys were the foreman, Van Lasseter, and the night watchman. The white notchman made his regular rounds at night, but he saw nothing unusual. Well, as I said, Jones was by himself, and when he heard a sound as though someone had stumbled into a pile of packages or crates that were stocked in the warehouse floor, he jumped to his feet and shouted, whereupon the intruder dashed across the warehouse and out the door that leads to the loading ramp. Lasher had left the door unlocked when he went to get the coffee. Jones could hear feet pounding over the concrete floor 
and tried to catch the intruder in the beam of his flashlight. Just as the man dashed out the door, he seemed to drop something. Mr. Quayle paused a moment, and Johnny Baker said, Then you do have a suspect. No, Quayle said thoughtfully. I'm not sure that we do. When Lester turned with when Lester returned with the coffee, he turned on the lights and the two of them looked around. What the prowler had dropped was a flashlight. From the name inked on the piece of the adhesive wrapped around the handle, Lester recognized it belonging to a young fellow who worked in the warehouse day crew, a lad named Joy Watson. Vicky drew in her breath sharply, then quickly covered up her inadvertent expression of surprise by putting her fingers to her lips and coughing slightly. She looked quickly at Kathy and Captain March, remembering that she had casually mentioned Joey's name to them the other day, but both the pilot and the stewardess seemed to have forgotten all about it. Mr. Quayle continued, When the crate was opened at Royal Palms Hall about nine this morning the theft, and the theft discovered, the police immediately called me on this case, since the interstate... Since the interstate aspect of the affair is put under the federal jurisdiction, I immediately began questioning the ground crew and warehouse personnel. Young Watson was at work as usual, and I questioned him, along with the others. He admitted that the flashlight belongs to him, and he said he kept it in a locker in the warehouse, but he denied being around the airport at all after he knocked off, after he knocked off work for the day. He claimed that he and his pals had gone to the movies last night and then straight home to their boarding house. One of my men is checking his story as a matter of routine. Captain March was asking another question, but Vicky's thoughts had gone to the had gone off in a dizzying, dizzying cycle of speculation. The flashlight that was the prowler had dropped last night was Joey's. Only yesterday afternoon, a foreign-looking stranger had offered Joey a large sum of money to do some kind of work, the nature of which had been taken pains to keep obscure. On leaving Joey, the stranger had directed his taxi to the Granada restaurant in Ubar City. On the plane, old Mr. Terrell had tried to call her attention to the same restaurant. Or had he? Could there possibly be any connection between the seemingly unrelated events should she reveal these half-informed thoughts that didn't seem to quite make sense to her, or Miss didn't seem to quite make sense to her, to Mr. Quayle, he hadn't been too impressed when she had told him about Mr. Terrell's queer behavior on the plane. No, she decided, Joey was already under the cloud of suspicion. No use involving him any deeper. She'd have to talk with Joey first. Her mind came back to the discussion that was going on. And so, Mr. Quill was saying, for the moment we are at a dead end. The crate that was delivered to the exhibition hall was identical with the one shipped from the museum. If it had been opened and metal scrap substituted for the gold coins, it was the cleverest job I've ever seen. Vicky remembered Mr. Curtin saying the same thing. Maybe the coins were taken out of the crate in the museum in New York before the crate was shipped, Johnny Baker ventured. That's the baffling thing, Mr. Quill said. He shook his head, his brow wrinkled in puzzlement. The curators of the museum personally checked the contents and stood by while the crate was closed and sealed. Just a few minutes before it was given to the crew of the armored truck for delivery to Idlewild, 
Well, Captain March concluded, all I can say is that you've got the darnest mystery on your hands that I've ever come across. You can say that again, said Mr. Coyle. Outside the office door, the crew of the flight outside the door, the crew of flight seventeen looked at each other for a long moment without speaking. What do you make of it, Skipper? Johnny Baker asked. I don't even try, the captain grinned. I'll leave that to the FBI. He looked at his watch. I'll meet you guys all at the loading gate in 45 minutes. He turned and walked away. Come on, gals, Johnny said brightly. I'll buy the Cokes. Not for me, thanks, Vicky said. I have an errand to do. She watched Johnny and Kathy stroll away in the direction of the soda fountain and stood still a minute wondering what to do. Should she go over to the warehouse to talk with Joey? No, better not. No use calling attention to the fact that the stewardess of the plane that had brought in the gold was a friend of the only person thus far who was suspected of having a hand in stealing it. Maybe she'd find him in the snack bar. She directed her steps to the small air-conditioned restaurant. Inside, she looked around, but there was no sign of joy. Well, she thought, there's nothing she could do now. She'd just have to wait until she got back to Tampa on Sunday. Maybe a couple of extra days would give her a chance to straighten out these wispy, formless thoughts that were buzzing around somewhere in the back of her head. So Chapter 6, The New York Interlude When, six hours later in New York, Vicky entered a large apartment she shared with five other Federal Airline hostesses, she found the place in shambles. Furniture was piled up, Helter shelters, canvas-covered parts of the floor, and paint buckets and stepladders were stacked in corners. A wave of turpentine-flavored air assailed her nose, and at, some, at the same time, that pounding rhythm of swing and sway music from the record player blasted in her ears. The lost is found, Celia trembled, greeted her gaily. The stranger has returned. Come in, stranger. We're having a party. Vicky waved her hands around at the jumble of scaffold and paint buckets and stepladders. What in the world were being painted, Vicky? At last, after two years of pestering the landlord, we're finally being painted. And to honor this eventful occasion, we're giving a party. You're just in time. Vicky stepped over the piles of newspapers and brushes, buckets and paint splattered overalls, and entered the apartment's big living room. Apparently the painters hadn't gotten this far, for the room seemed to be in fair semblance of order. The rug, however, had been thrown back, and two couples were dancing to the swing beat of the music. Dot Conley was dancing with Pete Car- Caramley, the newspaper reporter, and Gene Cox with, with Vicky's former co-pilot, Dean Fletcher. When the four spotted Vicky in the living room doorway, Dean stopped in mid-step and led Jean over to her. Well, well, he said. He tan- his tanned face split in a big grin. How does my little ex-crew member like the sunny south? It's the greatest, Vicky laughed. Then how come you haven't got a Florida suntan? I'm working on it, Vicky replied. She looked up at the tall fire. But, you, but you're tan enough for both of us. This tan I got down in Mexico on my vacation, Dean assured her proudly. And you know what, Vicky? Remember that hidden valley we discovered down there? Darn if I can't find it again. Well, I was flying around this time. And? 
he grinned archly, without ego. Impossible. Look, you two, Jean said. Why don't you dance while you talk? I'll go help Mrs. Duff make the sandwiches. Dean Fletcher danced as well as he flew, and that, Vicky knew, was good. Think, think we'll ever be assigned to the same crew again, Vicky asked, as Dean whirled her around to the swing of the music. In this business, Dean smiled, you never can tell. But I have my fingers crossed. I miss you. At that moment, the music stopped while the record player was changed. At that moment, the music stopped while the record player was changed, and Pete Carmody came ambling over. The reporter was tall and thin, and unlike Dean Fletcher, his skin looked as if it hadn't been exposed to the sun for years. Hi, Vic, the reporter said. We have a whale of a story on the wire today about Tampa. Aren't you on that run? Vicky nodded her head. Was the story something about gold coins? It was. Know anything about it? Oh, not much, Ricky said, crinkling up her mouth in mock concentration. Except that my plane was carrying the gold. What? Peter almost shouted. Don't get excited, Pete, Ricky smiled. My flight had the gold coins on board. We didn't know it until we were questioned by the FBI at noon today, so I'm not what you call a news source. I can see the headlines now, Pete said. Vicky Barr, famous airlines hostess and gold thief, admits holding up a plane carrying treasure in midair, makes off with booty. He stopped his kidding and grew serious. No fooling, Vic. Do you know anything I could use? Seriously, Pete, Vicky said. Not a thing. I don't know how much of a story you got, how much of a story your paper got, but I can tell you that the Tampa police and the FBI are up against what they might what they admit is a blank wall. You mean to say, Pete asked, that somebody just waved his magic fingers and a chest of gold was changed was changed to a chest of nuts and bolts? Pete, Vicky said, that's exactly what it looks like. At the moment Mrs. Duff and at the moment Mrs. Duff, the girl's housekeeper, appeared with a helping platter of sandwiches. She followed this with a steaming pot of coffee and a cool pitcher of milk. After the supper was eaten, Mrs. Duff had cleared away the dishes. Pete Carmon got to his feet and clapped his hands for attention. We will now, he proclaimed, play charades. Miss Vicky Barr will captain one team, and I will captain the other. Vicky, take your first choice of players. It was the winter crisp air in New York, in New York and the informal atmosphere of the apartment which she shared with her friends, Vicky relaxed and gave her mind over to the problem of how to act out. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. But deep in her subconscious, like chips of wood in a whirlpool, names and people and things were churning themselves up and around and over and over. Joey's flashlight, the slick, the slick Latin-type imposter, a sick old man on the airplane, a restaurant in Ubar City, a tired-looking FBI man trying to solve a challenging case. She was glad when the party broke up early, and she could tumble into bed. Isn't this turpentine smell awful, Jean said, as she turned out the lights and pulled the covers up over her head. You won't believe it, Jean, Vicky said, but it smells like oleander. I wish it wouldn't. We're starting on Chapter 7. Ubar City. New York had been icy cold and covered with a blanket of snow. 
Now as Captain March backed his big airplane into the landing pattern over Tampa, it was as though Vicky were on some kind of futuristic spaceship coming down into a completely different world. Funny, she thought. This morning it was winter, this afternoon it was summer. When the ship rolled to a standstill in front of the unloading gate and the big door was swung open, Vicky breathed a deep sigh of thick, sweet-scented air and sighed contently. Golly, she thought, I'm falling in love with Florida. Me, a girl from Illinois. She, she quickly went through the routine of checking in at the flight en flight's end and then once more found herself face to face with the problem of what to do about Joey. She knew that she had to talk with him, but again she decided against going to the warehouse to see him. It would be better to get his address from personnel and call him at his boarding house. Just as she was making this decision, she heard a cheerful, familiar voice. Hi there, Miss Vicky. Joey's eager face certainly didn't look like that of a suspected criminal. I saw your plane come in, and I asked the boss for a few minutes off to come over and say hello. You're just the person I wanted to see, Joey, Vicky told him. Come over to the snack bar and I'll buy you a Coke. Nothing doing, the boy grinned. I'll come with you, but the Coke's on me. Vicky led the way to Vicky led the way to one of the booths, and when they had ordered, she said seriously, Look here, Joey, you may be in trouble. Joey frowned, then his face brightened in his infectious grin. If you mean about that flashlight they found the night the gold shipment was stolen, forget it. Forget it? Sure, it was my flashlight, all right. But either it was stolen from my locker, or I had left it around and somebody picked it up. The FBI men squeezed me about it, but I pro proved that it couldn't have been anywhere near. But I proved that I couldn't have been anywhere near the airfield that night. I room with a fellow by the name of Pete Sanders. He works in the terminal checkroom. Well, that particular night, Thursday, I met Pete after work, and we ate so ate supper at Cece's Italian restaurant down by the docks. Then we went to a movie and got home a little after 12. I told all this to the FBI man, and Pete told him too. What I was thinking about, Vicky said, was that job offer that man made you in the same afternoon. The man who promised you $100 to do a job for him and offered to give you 25 bucks of it in advance. Joey's eyes widened. How, how in the world did you know about that, Miss Vicky? I haven't mentioned it to a soul. Not even Pete. It just so happened, Joey, that I was sitting in the next booth, this very one we're in now, and I couldn't help overhearing. All Joey could say was an astonished G. Have you, have you seen him again, Mr. Duke? Wasn't that his name? Joey finally found his voice. Gosh, no. I figured he was nutty or something, offering me all that money out of the clear sky. I couldn't have touched it for anything. It sounded either crazy or crooked and I didn't want any part of it. Vicky breathed a deep sigh of genuine relief. She'd been pretty sure that Joey wouldn't get himself mixed up in something wrong. If I were you, Joey, Vicky said, I'd go tell Mr. Quayle, the FBI investigator, and tell him about your conversation with Mr. Duke. Gee, Vicky, Joey was so startled by the suggestion that he neglected to add the usual miss, which he automatically put in front of her name. Do you think Mr. Duke might... Do you think Mr. Duke might have something to do with the stolen gold? Vicky thought for a swift moment. 
Her vague, uninformed suspicions wouldn't make any sense to the boy. She said, not necessarily, but some mighty particular things have been going around this airport, and even though you've proved that you weren't in the warehouse Thursday night, it was your flashlight the prowler dropped, and up to now, you're the only person who has come under suspicion. I think you ought to go to Mr. Quill, if for no other reason than to show you want him than to show that you want to do everything you can to help him. Besides, sometimes sometimes little odd unrelated facts can be the key that opens up the whole mystery. I'm not saying this is one, she added hastily, but I'm saying that it could be. Gee, Joey said again, if you think I should, I'll certainly do it. And do it right now, Vicky advised, before you report back to work. Joey looked anxiously at the clock over the lunch counter. I'm supposed to be back on the job in five minutes. Van's a good guy, but he'll get sore when people are late. Just tell him the FBI sent for you again. I know it's sort of a fib, but under the circumstances, I think you'll be all right, and it ought to satisfy your boss. As the two were about to get up from their seats, a tall, dark-haired young man in leather, in a leather windbreaker loomed over the booth. Hello there, Joey. His brow... His brown face smiled at Vicky. Hello, he said. Joey jumped to the feet, jumped to his feet. Hi, Steve. Miss Vicky, this is Steve Miller, the pilot I was telling you about the other day. Hello, Steve, Vicky, returned the smile. Do you think you can make a pilot out of this fellow? I think so, or at least give him an A for eagerness. But you've got to admit that I took over the controls for a while yesterday, Joey beamed. That's right. Almost flipped us over on our back. You're a pilot, Miss Barr. Oh, Joey told me all about you. So you so you tell him that you've got to learn to fly level before you can do nip-ups and bells, just as you have to learn to sit on a horse while he's walking before you can keep your seat when he's going at a gallop. That's true, Joey, Vicky smiled. You do exactly what Mr. Miller tells you, and we'll pin a pair of wings on you yet. It's been a pleasure, Miss Barr, Steve Miller said, and as he he said as he turned to go, maybe some afternoon when we're both free you'd like to take my ship up for a spin. Thanks. Awfully. I might just take you up on that one of these days, she turned to Joey. Now you do what I suggested before you go back to work. Sure thing, Miss Vicky, Joey said. Vicky came down late on Monday morning. Except for Mrs. Tucker puttering around somewhere back in the kitchen area, the big curtain of the house the big curtain house was quiet as church. At the sound of Vicky's footsteps on the stairs, the housekeeper popped her head out of the dining room door. Morning, Miss Vicky. I have some breakfast on the table for you in a jiffy. You don't want to miss the big going ons downtown this morning. This is the day this is the day of the pirate's land. Vicky sat down at the big dining table, and Mrs. Ducker brought her a glass of orange juice. You can't live in Florida without having orange juice for breakfast, she remarked, and the girls left you this note. Vicky opened it and read, Dear Vic, had some errands to do, so Nina and I have gone on ahead. Wanted to let you get your beauty sleep. Don't miss the big pirate invasion. The ship comes in at about noon. I'll manage to find you in the crowds, I hope. Love, Louise. Vicky looked at her watch. 10.30. 
She'd have plenty of time. She ate breakfast and read the morning paper. It was devoted almost entirely to the coming visit of the Jose Gasparilla and the pirate crew that was expected to land and conquer the city shortly after noon. Headlines in the New York paper yesterday had been devoted to the United States' new satellite. Here, a small story about it was almost lost at the bottom of the page one. Vicky giggled. This week, Tampa turned back the clock and the calendar 150 years. There was one story on an inside page that caught her eye. It was the follow-up on the theft of the gold coins. The carefully worded account contained no new facts, simply stated that the local police and FBI were pressing their investigation and that Mr. John Quayle, chief of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the Tampa District, was confident that the case would be broken soon. There was no mention of Joy Watson or the flashlight clue. The part of the story that most interested Vicky was the spread of pictures of antique coins that had been forwarded from the museum in New York. Even in the black-and-white newspaper reproduction, she could see that these were the coins of exotic design and extraordinary beauty. One showed a huge bright, bright one showed a huge bird in flight, another a boar likeness of a sea nymph, her hair blowing above the waves. A third showed the profile of a forgotten queen wearing a tall, many-pointed crown. Her face was encircled by laurel branches. An entire coin was rimmed with stars. On a hunch, Vicky tore the picture out of the paper and slipped it into her purse. When Mrs. Tucker came in to clear the table, Vicky asked, Aren't you going downtown to see the fun? The housekeeper smiled in a motherly smile. I haven't missed one yet. Outside, the sun was shining down out of a cloudless and brilliantly blue sky. A gentle breeze blew in from the Gulf of Mexico, ruffling the fawns of the tall palm trees that lined the street and serving, and serving to make the heat bearable. As she approached the downtown part of Tampa, the traffic grew heavier and the crowds thicker until by the time she had made her way to the waterfront, the throng was so jammed that she could hardly push her way through. Golly, Vicky thought, she'd never seen so many people in one place in all her life, not even in New York. The paper had said that more than half a million people were expected to jam the streets today, and Vicky estimated that that figure wouldn't be far wrong. This was more than four times the normal population of the city. She wondered how ma- she wondered how all of them had managed to find places to stay. She elbowed her way to the front of the crowd just in time to see a big drawbridge swing up to allow a just in time to see a big drawbridge swing up to allow a big sailing ship to enter the upper bay. It was an authentic-looking pirate ship a full-rigged sailing vessel. Hundreds of colorful pendants flew from from lines rigged over its superstructure, and its decks and yard arms were jammed with men in fierce-looking pirate costumes, waving cutlasses and shooting pistols into the air. The ship's sails were furled, and a pair of tugboats Tiny, by comparison, were pushing the ship through the water. Dozens of cruisers, sailboats, outboards, 
and skiffs were clustered around her, like chicks around a mother hen. Everybody was shouting and yelling. People in the crowds that milled around Vicky were craning their heads to see over the people's heads, and the fathers were holding little children on shoulders to let them see the fun. Peddlers circulated the crowd carrying trays of souvenirs, pirate flags, confederate flags, tiny brass figures of pirates, pistols, cutlasses, and model ships. Caught up helplessly in the surging throng, Vicky was pushed away. Vicky was pushed this way and that, but she found that she was cheering and shouting with the rest of them and having a time of her life. Then the pirates landed amid wild choruses of cheering and yelling and firing of blank pistols. Shots. The costume members of the Yi Mystic crew clambered onto the gaily decorated floats amid the strident music of half a dozen bands. The parade began to move slowly up the street from the docks. On one of the floats, wearing a huge black beard and an eye patch and brandishing a revolver in the air, Vicky saw a figure that looked vaguely familiar. She blinked and stared a second time. It was Mr. Curtin. He wore a stripped red and white sash around his waist, and on his head was perched a tri-cornered hat with a huge skull and crossbones painted on its front. Carried along by the tide of the crowd, Vicky waved frantically and yelled at the top of her voice, Hi, Mr. Curtin. Hi, Mr. Curtin. Finally, he saw her and waved back, Yo-ho, Vicky, and a bottle of rum. Where are all the girls? I don't know, Vicky shouted, but by this time the crowd had swept her away, and in an instant she lost sight of Mr. Curtin and his float. The whole city was enjoying itself. When she finally wore... When she finally wormed her way out of the middle of the huge throng, Vicky could see couples dancing in the streets under the waving palms to the music of the bands. Children's, children were running around everywhere, carrying balloons and little toy models of ships and pirate swords. Over at the wharf, now securely tied up and deserted by its crew, the Jose Gasparilla, its pendants flapping in the gentle breeze rocked to the motion of the water, and squeaked as its sides rubbed against the rubber tire fenders that lined the dock. Free at last from the thickest part of the crowd of swarming people, Vicky stopped to catch her breath. There wasn't a chance in a million, she thought, that she would find Nina and Louise. Well, it was a pleasant day, so why not walk around and see the sights? She hadn't had a chance to do much sightseeing since she had been at Tampa. At that moment, her eye was attached attracted to a painted sign atop one of the dockside buildings. Visit glamorous Ubar City, enchanted land of fiesta and romance. Arbor City, the Granda restaurant, the little old man on the plane had appeared on the plane had appeared to be trying to direct her attention to it. The mysterious Mr. Duke had gone there after his particular talk with Joy. She hadn't been able to her mind or the nagging thoughts that these two events might be connected, so why not go there and see the place for herself? She walked for some time through the crowded streets before she could find an empty taxi. Ubar City was quite different from the modern sections of Tampa. Here the streets were narrow and ancient buildings of brick and stucco 
sat flush with the sidewalk. Unlike the broad, palm-lined boulevard of modern Tampa, there were few trees in evidence in university. Some of the buildings had doorways of intricate iron grillwork, and on some, balconies overhung the sidewalks to make sheltered arcades. This Latin quarter of Tampa, Viquita, was indeed a city within a city, a bit of old Spain dropped down in the middle of modern American metropolitan metropolitans. She saw signs in she saw signs in some of the store windows printed in Spanish, and most of the people in the streets, aside those whose clothes and bearing marked them as tourists, had dark hair, dark complexion, Latin look. Flags, small gold-colored ships, and other souvenirs of the Gasparilla Festival filled the window shops and were hawked by peddlers on the street. Attracted by the old-world charm of quarter. Of the quarter, Vicky stopped the taxi and paid her fare and stepped out onto the sidewalk. She was in no hurry and decided to walk around and see the sights and visit the Granda Restaurante restaurant where she came to visit it when she came to it. She walked leisurely down the street as she passed an old brick house with an iron grill around its doorway. She noticed the sign F.R. Eaton Smith, travel agent. Now, why was that name so familiar? Suddenly she remembered. Of course, that was the name of the man on the plane the other day. The day the gold coin, the gold was stolen. The man who told her he was a world traveler and lecturer and opened a travel agency in Tampa. It struck her as a little odd that he should have his office out here in the Latin Quarter instead of downtown Tampa. The windows were filled with attractive travel posters from all over the world. She halted momentarily to look at them, and at that moment a truck pulled up to the curb and stopped. The driver stepped up to Mr. Eaton Smith's door, rang the bell, while two other men wrestled a large crane out of the back of the truck and deposited it on the sidewalk. The crate was marked Air Express in large letters, and Vicky noticed casually that it was securely wrapped around with metal bands. Just then, Mr. Eaton Smith answered the bell and stepped out onto the sidewalk. Crate for you, sir, the truck man said. Just carry it in the front hallway, boys, he said. His glance went to Vicky, whose progress along the sidewalk had been momentarily blocked by the truck men and their burden. As he stared at her, he looked exactly as he had on the plane when he had given her a hand with old Mr. Terrell, dignified slightly portly, slightly bald, and with his eyes scarcely visible behind the highly polished rimless glasses. He smiled and stepped up to Vicky and offered his hand. Well, well, he said, aren't you the little hostess from the airplane the other day? Hello, Mr. Eaton Smith, Vicky said, accepting his hand. It isn't often that I run into my passengers after they have left the plane. And it's a real pleasure to see you again, Miss Miss Barr, Vicky said. Oh, yes, of course, Miss Barr. This is a pleasant time to visit Tampa. With the festival in full swing, he glanced over his shoulder. If you'll excuse me, Miss Barr, I better attend to this express shipment. Nodding his head politely, he disappeared into the house. Vicky strode on, and turning and turning a corner, saw a sign that read, Gran Restaurante. Grande Restaurant. It was on the street 
with the unsung Spanish name of Fifth Avenue. The ground was a colorful restaurant, and judging by the number of people seating at it, the seating, seated at the tables, a popular one. The foyer was just inside the door. Was the foyer just inside the door was floored with bright mosaic tiles, as were the walls in the room. A tiny fountain in the middle of the hall was surrounded by small potted palms and brightly colored flowers. A huge, a huge archway provided the entrance to the restaurant proper. As Vicky paused under the archway and looked around the room, a dark-haired waiter wearing a short white jacket stepped up to greet her with a typical Spanish politeness. You are meeting someone, senorita, he spoke with a soft Spanish accent. No, I am alone. Then, here's a nice table for you, the waiter led the way to a small table in the corner. Will this be comfortable? For Vicky's purpose, the corner table was perfect. Sitting here, she could view the entire room, the entrance as well. She herself was half shielded by a cluster of palms growing out of the blue and white urn. And in the opposite corner of the room, a musician in the Spanish costume was softly playing Spanish tunes on an accordion. To the waiter who was standing by, she said, Do you have another do you have other musicians here? Possibly at night? She indicated the piano beside the accordionist as the accordionist was standing as he played. See, si, see. Si. At dinner we also have a piano and a violin. Vicky's heart quickened. A violin. Maybe she was on the right track after all. Your violinist, she asked. Is he tall, thin, elder Is he a tall, thin, elderly man with gray hair? The waiter laughed and slapped his expensive st his expensive stomach as though Vicky had made a funny joke. You do not know Pedro Signorita. He's big like me, even fatter. He puts his fingers to his lips and blew kisses into the air. But his violin is the sweetest in Ubar City. Then you don't know a violin play player named Mr. Terrell? The waiter wrinkled his brow and slowly shook his head. Terrell? He put a soft vowel on the end of his name. No, senorita, only Pedro plays the violin at the Granada. Vicky's heart fell quickly as it had leaped up and... Vicky's heart fell as quickly as it had leaped up a moment before. To cover her disappointment, she gave her attention to the menu the waiter had handed her. She wasn't hungry, having eaten a big breakfast only a short time before, but she felt that she had to order something to justify her presence. She ordered a sandwich with an unpronounceable Spanish name. The sandwich fascinated Vicky. It contained sausage, cheese, sliced tomato, sliced olives, and capers, and it was so huge that it would have made a complete meal by itself. Along with it, the waiter brought a silver pot of coffee, which, when he poured it to a delicately made cup, proved to be as thick and sweet as hot chocolate. Mickey looked around the room as she nibbled the sandwich, sandwich's ample contents. Most of the patrons were American, tourists in the town for the festival, she guessed, by looking at their pale, untanned faces, scattered among them were people with distinctly Spanish faces, many of them dressed in colorful Spanish costumes. These, she knew, must be the natives of the quarter. The air was filled with a cheerful babble of conversation, 
that was a mixture of English and Spanish. Suddenly a loud, cheerful, Spanish-accented voice made Vicky turn her head sharply. Raymond Duke was coming through the arched doorway. Arturo, he hailed at the waiter who had served Vicky lunch. Como estas? How goes it? Bueno, Senor Duke, the waiter's dark the waiter's dark eyes and broad smile beamed a hearty welcome. It was a it was plain that Ramon Duke was a regular patron of the Garanda. Hello, Duke, a group of nearby table a nearby table called. Come over here and sit with us. Duke stepped briskly to the table, shook the hands all around, and sat in an empty chair. Was it hot in Havana? One of the men asked. Not on Rado Beach, Duke flashed a white tooth smile. In a few more words, and Duke excused himself. He sat down alone at a small table with his back towards Vicky. After ordering his lunch from the ubiquitous Arturo, he took some papers out of his pocket and settled down to read them. Every minute or so, the Duke was, as Duke was eating his lunch, various people stopped at his table to say hello. How's the Duke? That was a mighty fast trip to Havana. What's the good word, Duke? He certainly was a popular man in Uber City. Vicky could see that plainly. Duke took his time finishing his lunch. Vicky stepped, sipped her coffee and finally ordered another pot, which she didn't want. At last, Duke called for his check and paid it and got to his feet. Vicky called for her own check at the same time, and by the time Arturo had taken her money and returned her charge, and she had stepped out once again into the Fifth Avenue, she saw Duke's tall, broad-shouldered figure down the end of the. She saw Duke's tall, broad-shouldered figure down at the end of the block. Vicky had come to Ubar City on the off chance that she might see the little old man from the plane. Instead, she had a run-in with the mysterious Mr. Duke, the man who had offered jo Joy some kind of job on the afternoon before the gold robbery. Could there possibly be a connection somewhere? She didn't see how, but since she'd come this far, her detective instincts were too keen to let her stop now. She sauntered in the Duke's direction. It was well that she walked slowly. Duke was stopped half a dozen times in two blocks by people who loudly addressed him as the Duke and exchanged pleasantries with him. Finally, he turned into the hallway of a house, pressed the buzzer, and when it was answered, disappeared through the door. Clearly, this was neither his house nor his office, or he would have gone in without ringing the bell. Vicky waited on the street for 15 minutes, looking in the window shops, trying her best to act as, trying her best to act like a tourist, but Mr. Duke did not reappear. On an impulse, she retraced her steps to the Granada restaurant. The big room was now more than half empty, settling down as all settling down as do all restaurants into the mid afternoon doldrums. Arturo, the waiter, was sitting at a table writing out the evening menus in Spanish and purple ink on large sheets of yellow paper. He looked up as Vicky approached. Yes, senorita? It's about Mr. Duke. I have some business with him. Unfortunately, I don't have his address. I thought possibly you might help me. She took a dollar bill from her purse and placed it on the table. This is for your trouble. 
The waiter took her bill and slipped it into his pocket. Ah, yes, he said. But weren't you here at lunch when Mr. Duke was here? Yes, McKees hesitated. But he was speaking to so many people. See, see, I understand. And you wish to know where he lives? That's right, or the address of his office. Arturo shrugged. To find the Duke is like putting your finger on Quicksilver. But his home is on Columbus Drive at the corner of 13th Street. A red brick house with a balcony. Perhaps you can find him there. Vicky inquired the way to Columbus Drive, and when the waiter told her that it was two streets up, she thanked him and left the cool interior of the restaurant. Walking along the street, fascinated by the colorful costumes of people by the open-air strands where white-caped chefs were serving steaming hot bowls of bean soup to any passerby that wanted one, Vicky took stock of the situation. She knew that Mr. Raymond Duke was a regular patron of the Granada restaurant, but since on Thursday she had heard him direct a taxi to take him there, this was not startling news. From the snatches of various conversations with people in the restaurant that she had overheard, she knew that he had many and varied business connections, but he had told this to Joey, so, again, she had learned nothing new. Old Mr. Trill was not playing in the Granada Orchestra. She had leaped blindly into, that, into a conclusion that he was employed there. When she found the marked travel folder on the seat the elderly man had occupied, what, what she had expected to discover in Uvarsity, Vicky didn't know. But what she had actually found was absolutely nothing. There really didn't seem to be much since going to Mr. Duke's house, but since an impulse had made her inquire about this address, and since she was within a block of the house, there was no reason why she shouldn't go. When she turned the corner into Columbus Drive, she saw that it was no different from any other street in Uber City. The same curo shops, churro shops, the same restaurants, the same crowds of festival people, the same sidewalk peddlers, she found the house with no difficulty. A balcony of wrought iron grillwork overhung the front door. She stood before the house for several minutes, looking at the intricate old-fashioned grillwork over the door, peering at the heavily curtained windows which were about to which were which she was about to move on when the door opened and a man stepped out. It was old Mr. Terrell. He still looked as shabby and harassed as he had on the plane. His spare his sparse gray hair was still bad badly in need of trimming. There was the same bewilderment bewildered hunted look in his eyes. When he looked up and saw Vicky, he recognized her immediately. He clasped her hand almost desperately, she thought. Miss Barr, he whispered, Do you remember me? Why certainly I do, Mr Terrell, Vicky said trying to keep her voice calm and, a nor- and normal in tone. The unexpected sight of this old man, who had been so much in her thoughts, had sent her heart to, had sent her heart to pounding. So there was some connection between Terrell and Duke and the Granada restaurant, and possibly with Duke's talk with Joey, and her imagination took a wild leap, maybe even with the stolen gold. But she said, but she said evenly, it's nice to see you again. 
You look much better than you did the last time I saw you. This was a fib. If anything, the old violinist looked paler and more worried, but she felt that she had to say something to keep him here until she could put the mix up. Mixed up thoughts that she, you that were spinning around crazily in her head into some order. A few days in Florida seems to have done you a lot of good. The old man still clung to her hand. Miss Barr, I want you. I have to talk to you. At the moment, a voice boomed from over the open doorway. Old man, get going. Raymundook stood in the entryway, glowering under dark eyebrows. Yes, sir, the old man muttered and scurried away like a frightened rabbit. She looked at Duke, his dark frown had magically become a white-toothed smile, and he bowed his head graciously. Ah, he said, the young lady from the restaurant. This observation again set Vicky's heart to pounding. Had Duke seen her the day she'd overheard his conversation in the airport snack bar? She stammered a reply. The restaurant? Ah, yes, it isn't every day a young lady... Lunches at the Granada alone, Raymond Duke has an eye for beauty. If you will allow me to introduce myself, and even though you sat by yourself at the corner table, believe me that I noticed and admired you. Again, Vicky noticed this slight lisp in his voice as he spoke. Relieved, Vicky smiled. This was a break she certainly hadn't expected. A chance to talk with this man, who, like Mr. Trill, had been who had been so much in her thoughts these past few days. I'm flattered, Mr. Duke, she said coyly. I see, Mr. Duke said casually, that you are acquainted with our elderly friend. He nodded at the retreating figure of Mr. Twell, who was hurrying down Columbus Drive, and at that instant turned a corner and disappeared from view. Not really, Vicky replied casually. I met him on the airplane coming down from New York last week. My name is Vicky Barr. I'm a stewardess on the Federal Airlines, and Mr. Terrell was ill. That's why I remembered him so well. Ah, so, Mr. Duke said, with a smile never leaving his dark-skinned face, does does he work for you? Vicky asked hesitantly. He told me that he was a musician, a violinist. Possibly he plays the violin, I don't know. But here in Uber City, he works as a handyman, runs errands, he shrugged. An old man can't do much to earn a living. I'm a little surprised, Vicky ventured, that in view of his circumstances, he came to Florida from New York by first-class air travel. Again, Duke's face darkened momentarily, but the smile reappeared almost instantly, and once more he shrugged his shoulder in the gesture that is almost as part of... And once more he shrugged his shoulder in the gesture that is almost as... Much a part of the Spanish language as spoken words. Quinzebe, who knows? The conversation had come to a dead end. Vicky would have liked to prolong it, but she didn't know what to say. It's been pleasant meeting you, Miss, uh, Miss Barr, Duke said. Visit us in Uber City again. He inclined his head in a short nodding bow. Adios. And with that, he turned, his dis- he turned and disappeared through the doorway. Vicky walked walked slowly down the street. At the corner, she hailed an empty taxi and directed the driver to the Curtin residence. Then 
Then she leaned back wearily in the seat and attempted to put in order the scrambled thoughts that still spun crazily in her head. She had been right after all. She couldn't imagine what the connection between Duke and old Mr. Terrell could be, but the old man was running errands for Duke and seemed frightened, half to death, and he had whispered desperately, I have to talk to you. Maybe she was letting her imagination run away with her, but one thing she was quite sure of, it was time to have another talk with Mr. Quayle of the FBI. She leaned forward in her seat. Driver, she said, I've changed my mind. Take me to the airport.